I guess in honor of graduation Sunday for Brendan, I should embarrass him or do something like that. Maybe. I don't know. But I'd at least share one story that is actually quite relevant to what we're talking about. When he was seven, Brendan and I were playing golf one afternoon, and he probably remembers this, and on a par three, and he hits this beautiful shot, and it bounces, and it gets closer and closer, and it's a good shot. Kind of bounces up there on the green, and of course he's just dancing, and I'm like, oh, really? Before your dad, you're going to get a hole and run? <laughs> and it, it kind, of, kind of dribbles up there a couple of feet from the hole. So excited, so proud. Of course, it took him three putts to get it in the hole from there. And he remembers that. And it was, it was a proud moment. Now, what he probably doesn't remember and probably didn't realize happened that same day was dad lost his temper. We were kind of playing, and he was hitting, and I really wasn't paying attention to much, just kind of having a you know, good time out there on the day, when all of a sudden a golf ball hit within feet of Brendan. And he was having a good time. He didn't know it. I'm mad. My son almost got hit by a golf ball. And so the people kind of pull up that hit it, and he kind of had this goofy look on his face, and I'm trying to figure out just how big of a scene I can create and not have my son tell my wife about it when I get home, right? And so I walk up, and I'm mad. And I kind of got in the guy's face, and I you know, asked him about it, and he said, I, I didn't mean for that to happen. I said, well, nobody does. I said, why didn't you yell? I said, have you never learned the etiquette you yell for? And he said, well, I did yell. I said, you yelled. I said, we are downwind from you. You weren't more than a couple hundred yards away. Are you telling me you yelled? He said, well, I didn't yell very loud. This isn't funny. I'm still mad. I said, what do you mean you didn't yell very loud? He goes, well, I just, I, I, I could have yelled louder. I said, well, that's, why didn't you yell loud? He said, well, because it was embarrassing. He said, it was embarrassing? What do you mean? He said, well, the louder you yell, the worse the shot must have been. I said, all right. Everything was okay, but I thought about that a lot. I still think about it. We are in, well, we're in Leviticus and we're in 2 Kings this morning. And it's a really neat passage. And I really appreciate the way Brad provided, you know, this this wonderful context about the story and everything that was going on. And and suffice to say, this is horrible famine and four lepers are faced with a choice I would not ever want to have. Four lepers are sitting there at the gate saying, you know what, we are in a predicament. There is a famine so bad, we're about to starve to death. Or we could just head down in the city, a pagan city of this, this warring nation, and see if they've got any food. Because we can sit here and die. Or we can go down there and they'll kill us. But if we go down there and we find food, then we live. But we're not going to die any worse down there than we will up here. And that's kind of the genesis of the story. And we understand the story that take place that they went down there, they found food, and, and actually you know, had this great revelation that it ought to be shared with others. But I can't imagine having leprosy so bad that you sit there and you would actually ask yourself, maybe we ought to sit here or maybe we ought to get up. 
It's absolutely fascinating because if you look at there are some things in the Bible that we don't appreciate as much as what they probably did at the time of the writing. There are some things that you know we read about, and for us, it's it's somewhat academic, and we can kind of hear stories and, and things like that. But for whatever reason, it is so unique enough to sort of that time that we don't really fully appreciate everything that went into it. Leprosy is one of those topics. And for some reason, leprosy has just kind of become very interesting to me. And I'll tell you why. There's a couple of reasons, not the least of which is I was, I've been traveling a lot outside of Baton Rouge. And outside of Baton Rouge, there in this town called Careville, is a museum dedicated to leprosy. Dedicated to the fight against leprosy. Dedicated against the cure and, and looking into leprosy. And it's a pretty unassuming, it's a very old building kind of out there. And it, to me, it was just kind of fascinating when I heard about that. So the more I was down there, the more I learned about it. Well, it's a museum today. But back in the 1890s, it started off as a leprosium, which is kind of a fancy term that we used for leper colonies. And what would happen for a hundred years, the people with leprosy were considered wards of the state. And so they were dropped off, abandoned. And there they lived their years. And it's kind of a fascinating story. Neil White wrote about it in 2009. Now, because an interesting thing happened to this leprosium, beginning in the 1990s, they began sort of phasing it out. You know, they, they didn't need them the same way that they did. In fact, this was one of the last two leprosiums in the entire country. But beginning in kind of the early 1990s, what they started doing is they had fewer and fewer patients is they converted part of the facility to a minimum security prison. Minimum federal security. And so Neil White had a little issue with check cashing and check writing and some things like that, and he was sentenced to a little over a year. Minimum security federal prison. And that's where he went. And he would go on after his release some ten years later to write a beautiful book entitled In the Sanctuary of Outcasts. And he wrote about what it was like and all the people that he meant, that he met, and all the people that welcomed him. And he wrote about how he transitioned from sort of this arrogant ignorance that he had on leprosy and what the people must have been like to an absolute love that he had for people that were so warm and so welcoming in the sanctuary of outcasts. And he told stories about women in their 80s who, when they were, you know, six, seven, eight, ten years old, were removed from the one bed or the one schoolroom class that they were in, put in the back of a truck that looked much like a dog catcher's truck, and dropped off there. He told the story of a lady in her 80s who could still recall the taste of the candy that her father fed her as he drove her there and dropped her off. It's a beautiful book. In the Sanctuary of Outcasts. And I've driven by it. 
And again, it's so unassuming, but the story and, and, and the legacy there. And, and leprosy is one of those things, again, that we don't fully appreciate. And when we do, we kind of give it, to, we sort of ascribe to it certain things that really aren't quite true and really aren't quite factual. It is a horrible disease. And we tend to think of it as it's this skin you know, issue, and it's really it's skin, but there's sort of a neural aspect of it, too. It's kind of in the nerves as well. You know, we think of it as sort of a blemish or some outward thing, but the other thing that's happening at the same time, because it's a bacteria that creates this problem. And it's not any kind of bacteria. It's a bacteria that is slow as it develops. Which is why you can go years from contracting it to the time that it's actually visible enough. And that time in between. You don't actually develop a whole lot of pain, apparently. Because as it takes root there, one of the things that it does is it kills the nervous system. Which means it deadens the pain. And so often, so many of these sort of grotesque things that we think about with leprosy are actually the result of not being able to feel your hand, not being able to feel your arm. And so you have no earthly idea that you've got a cut, that you've got an infection. And so I got to thinking, I wonder what the worst thing about being leper or having leprosy would be. You know, with all of that, what would be the, if there's one thing about leprosy, what would be the single worst thing? And as I looked at the list, as I made my list anyways, it, pain really had nothing to do with it. Because there are other diseases that have pain. Life expectancy doesn't really have anything to do with it. Because there are other things that sort of will zap you pretty quick. There's something else about it. And the Bible talks a lot about leprosy. The Bible uses specific teachings. If you go turn in your Bible now to Leviticus chapter 13 and chapter 13 and 14, you begin to see that as God is establishing the laws of the Mosaic laws, he had some very specific instructions on how leprosy was to be identified and how it was to be dealt with. And in the beginning, in chapter 13, verse 1, he begins to talk about the test. And through all that, you know, some 40 verses... He goes through about what is supposed to happen. And the net net of it is that they were to go to the priest. And the priest was the final arbiter on whether that was or wasn't considered leprosy. But the bottom line was still the same. If it was leprosy, the Bible says, as we skip down to verse 46, he shall remain unclean. This is the designation of the leper. All the days during which he has the infection, he is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside the camp. And so the 45 verses preceding that is all about how do you diagnose it, but here's the bottom line. If you were unclean because of leprosy, you were booted. You were on your own. You couldn't live with other people. You had to be, you were out on the outskirts of town. You lived alone. And leprosy comes up a lot in the Bible. You know, we look at, you know, there were times that God used leprosy very specifically to punish people that were disobedient. 
Miriam, it says in, in Numbers chapter 12, was stricken with leprosy when she had the gall to think that somehow God needed to speak through her as well. And she was immediately struck with leprosy. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, King Isaiah had the audacity to go into the temple and to burn incense, which was not his place. It was not his role. It was for the priests. And immediately, the Bible says, he was stricken with leprosy. And the Bible goes on to say that he had leprosy up until the day he died. Leprosy is a big deal. And that might explain why in the New Testament, when we see people that are cured of leprosy, because what's fascinating about leprosy is we didn't begin curing leprosy until the 1980s. Up until then, treatments pertaining to leprosy just slowed it. It slowed sort of its growth, but it never actually cured it. Curing really didn't start until the 1980s. And so thousands of years ago, as this was written, there was no cure. And you go back, you know, a couple thousand years almost, and it probably explains why there was so much joy whenever a leper was healed. Why ten lepers that were healed, nine of them forgot their manners and couldn't even come back. They were so excited, but one of them did. A healing so exciting that they ignored, that the one leper there in Mark ignored the specific instruction of Jesus, don't tell anybody. Do not tell anybody. But it was such a miraculous thing that he couldn't shut up. And so I thought, I wonder what the worst part of being stricken with leprosy must be. I thought, well, maybe it's that immediate stress. That immediate stress that comes the first time you see a blemish. You know, maybe it's on your hand or your arm or someplace, but you notice there's something there that wasn't there. And you have kind of that, that immediate stress, that immediate sick feeling. You kind of hope it's not, and there's a chance it might not be, but right away, you're stressed. You know, kind of that sinking, stressful feeling when you lose your car keys or your wallet or something like that, and you know you'll probably find them, and it's, they're probably not stolen or anything like that, but still, for a brief moment, it's just, it's just stress. But you see it, and you can't take your eyes off of it for however many days it happens. You might even kind of cover it up, wear long sleeves or something like that, but you still, you know it's there. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the sinking feeling when you realize the rash isn't going to go away. You know, it's one thing to kind of just notice it the first time, but maybe it's that sinking feeling because you've watched it day in, day out for what could be months even. And you look at it and you conclude it's not going to go away. I can remember, oh, it's been 20-something oh, years ago. You know, I had just kind of a little little thing right here. And I didn't. I did a little scab and everything like that. And I just, okay. And I heard about skin cancer and whatnot. And, but I remember that sick feeling I had. Even before I got to the doctor, when I had to realize it wasn't going to go away. Even before the diagnosis, 
It was just this sick feeling. I wonder if maybe that's what it is. That sick feeling that comes, even though you're not a priest, even though you can't make the designation, but you still see the rash and you know it's not going away. Maybe that's the worst part, the worst time about having leprosy. Maybe it's the the surreal moment when the priest looks at it and says, that's what it is. Without even talking about being banished or, or, or sent to the outskirts of town, just hearing his voice and just looking and listening. And we know what that's like. That surreal moment when bad news is given to us even before we really feel the impact of what that really means, until we actually go through it or we think about treatments or anything like that, but just to hear it come out of somebody else's mouth, you're stricken. Maybe that's what it is. That moment when they they hear a priest look at them and say, unclean. Maybe that's the worst part. Maybe the worst part is their first day as an outcast. I don't know how much time they have to sort of gather their belongings. If at that moment of time they were sort of escorted straightway, you know, out of town, if they had an opportunity to go, you know, say goodbye to people, if they had the opportunity to write a note, if they could go home and pack a bag. I I don't know what that's like. If they were sort of evacuated out as if, you know, some major catastrophe was happening. I, I, I don't know that I fully appreciate that. But I think maybe, maybe the worst part or the most stressful part was that very first day outside of town. You haven't really made friends with the other lepers yet. You're new to the scene. And you think to yourself, 24 hours ago, things were different. Just last week, things were completely different. I wonder what goes through your mind your first day outcast as a leper. I wonder if you think about all the blessings that you had that you really didn't appreciate. I wonder if you think about all the food or all the the, the amenities of life that you had that, that you don't have anymore. I wonder if you think about what it's going to be like to be solely dependent on the benevolence of others. If that first day it just really hits you, I'm a leper? I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. Your first day as an outcast. Maybe it's the first time you encountered others. I think that would be pretty bad. You know, the very first time that somebody happened to pass by you. Because keep in mind, this is not a a growth that sort of moves sort of rapidly through the body or anything like that. That in the very beginning, even though they're outcasts, they're pretty functional. And relatively healthy, you know, in terms of everything else. You know, we tend to think of it as being so debilitating, and we tend to think of, you know, lepers as they get to that point, you know, just where they're on the brink of death, and things are just so horrible and so bad. We tend to think of it that way, but there's a whole lot of transition in between. I wonder if that was a bad day. I wonder if that was the worst part. To somehow come in contact with or encounter somebody that you used to go to school with. I don't know. Maybe it was the first time that you actually felt like a leper. The first time that you realized that you 
or so disfigured that when people looked at you, they looked at you very, very differently. And what a horrible day that must have been. I told you, you know, this topic is kind of meaningful to me, not just because of my traveling and sort of getting around there. A couple of weeks ago in the airport, I had something happen to me that, you know, for which I'm still horrifically ashamed. I was going through and I was in kind of in major gym mode, which means I have no earthly idea of anything else that's going on. More often than not, I've got my headphones on, I'm in my gym space, and you know, J-I-M, not G-Y-M, for those of you that were worried. But anyways, and so I go through the Starbucks line, and I get my coffee, and, I'm gonna, and I see the spot over there kind of by the window. I've got two hours, I'm just going to kind of go over there, gym time. And as I'm doing that, I'm struggling to get the stupid lid on the coffee and everything like that. And I'm kind of, you know, kind of going in and out of some, some seats. And I looked up. And I came literally face to face with a woman that had some something on her face. I couldn't tell you if it was leprosy or if it was some other growth. It was very disfiguring. And it Because I was still in the zone, because I was still just sort of in my own little world, it scared me. I mean, it really scared me. And I kind of jumped back a little bit. And I spilled coffee all down the front of my arm. Oh, don't laugh. This isn't a funny story. It really isn't. And I stood there and I just, I, I was frozen. And we made eye contact. And I just kind of mumbled out, excuse me. And just kind of shuffled to a more comfortable corner of the airport. And I sat there feeling horrible about myself. Because it was, it was dramatic. And it, and it wasn't one of those where I sort of played it up, you know, to, to get a laugh or anything like that. It scared me as I came around the corner. It was so hideous that it threw me back. And I sat there in guilt thinking about what I'd just done. And it only got worse as I, because I couldn't keep from looking over there. Luckily, her back was to me. But I watched her, and I listened as she talked to a two-year-old nephew. And in a very beautiful voice, sang him to sleep. And so rather than just sort of sit there and just do something different next time or anything like that. In typical gym fashion, I overreact and then I try to go make matters worse. And so, you know, our flight was getting ready to board and so I got up and I wasn't really, really sure what I was going to say. But I went there, made eye contact with her, and all I could say was, I am so sorry for the way I acted. I didn't know what else to say. And I wasn't mean about it. I, I wasn't malicious. I wasn't trying to poke fun. I was not trying to highlight her situation. And then she just looked back at me as if to try to make me feel worse, I guess. And she goes, that's okay. She said, it's not the first time that's happened. And all I could come to say was, well, I would to God that this would be the last. And she smiled and she said, I hope you have a good flight. So I wonder if maybe that was the day. That was the really, really bad day in the life of a leper. The first time that somebody came face to face with them and their reaction 
reminded you just how horribly disfiguring the situation was. And at that very moment, you had to realize that the person you once were is not the person you are now. And in the eyes of the world, you are hideous, unclean. You may have never missed a shower or a bath any day in your life, but now you are considered unclean. Maybe that's the worst part about being a leper. I think maybe the worst part about being a leper is when you go through that physical transformation, when you finally get to the point that your nervous system has now sort of contracted on itself and your fingers can do nothing but sort of close. And as they do, the sores grow around so that you literally no longer have a hand anymore. Maybe it's the day that you can't do things for yourself. You can't walk correctly. You can't maneuver. You can't feed yourself. I don't know. Maybe that's the worst part. I mean, those are seven things that are pretty bad. But I don't think they're the worst. You look in your Bible, Leviticus chapter 13, and come down to verse 45. And I'll tell you what I think the worst part about having leprosy must be. And that is the role that you play in your own condemnation. In Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45, as the Bible describes everything that's going to happen, what the Bible says and what the Bible sets forth into motion is this idea that not only are you going to be cast out, not only are you to be alone, not only are you to be separated, but you actually participate in this process. The Bible says that what happens is, and this was, this, and we understand why this happens. As for the leper, he who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean. Unclean, the Bible says. And the whole process was for health and and for the safety of others and for public health, and we understand that. And the way this was supposed to work is just on the off chance that somebody who had leprosy was going about their business. For whatever reason, doing whatever they're doing, being wherever they needed to be, and somebody who was healthy happened to encounter what they were supposed to do is scream out unclean. Which is to say, I am unclean. So that that person would avoid, they would walk around, they would take a different route, whatever it was, but there would be no mistaking the fact that this person, you know, who was healthy would not come in contact with the one that is unhealthy. And I think about what that must have been like. The first time you had to say it. You know, what would you do? Would you scream it? I don't know, I kind of envision that first time needing to say unclean as being, you kind of stutter through it. You see somebody coming, and you know what you are, and you know who you are, and you know what you've got to say. And maybe that first time, you, you just look at it and you just, you're hoping, you're praying, please go somewhere else. Please go around the pond. Please don't walk on this sidewalk. But they don't. And they keep getting closer and closer. And again, it's only, you know, it's only one word. 
easy to pronounce, probably even in the original language. But my guess is that very first time you had to do it, it probably stuttered a little bit. Unclean. Unclean. And they didn't hear you. And they got closer and closer until finally you had to condemn yourself. I'm unclean. And to say it in a tone and in a voice that it was unmistakable to everybody around. To me, I think that's the worst part. To me, I think that's the worst part. And as bad as that is, you know, the indignity of the, of the physical things and everything like that, it, to me, it's the indignity and the pain and the torment of the fact that you, on a daily basis, condemn yourself. And that you proclaim your uncleanness. To me, that would be the worst part. The rest is kind of physical and you can kind of suffer through it. And you can kind of get by, but to make me actually have to tell everybody just how unclean I am. And just how much. Because keep in mind, you really didn't talk to a whole lot of people. You really didn't have a social network. I mean, eventually they kind of got together here and there, but generally speaking, you were kind of alone. And so the only voice that you're used to hearing yourself say are the words, unclean. As awful as that must be, as awful as that must have been, I think there probably is something infinitely worse. It isn't our voice as lepers when we say we're unclean. I think it's our voice as people. The Bible talks about our conscience, kind of our inner voice. And the outer voice of being, you know, of shouting unclean, that's got to be horrible, but I think there is something far worse. And that's when our internal voice looks at our life and looks at God's expectation. And the only words that we can muster as we think about ourselves are the words unclean. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 it says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Later on in, in, in 1 Peter 2, verse 19, for this finds favor. It is for the sake of conscience toward, toward God that a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. The Bible talks time and time again about the role our conscience plays as we understand our relationship with God. And how we appear before God. And time and time again, we begin to, even after the very first sermon that Peter preached, they were pricked to the heart. Which is to say that they looked at themselves and the only word they could really come up with was unclean. Unclean. And that diagnosis is far worse than any physical infirmity that could come with with leprosy, I think that's one of the reasons why leprosy plays so prominently in the New Testament. If it took us until 1980 
to really begin the process of curing that disease, you can bet it was a horrible disease back then. And that it was one of those diseases that was stricken with despair and fear and shame. And so to come in contact with the Savior who is able to cleanse this horrible disease that wouldn't be cured for another 2,000 years had to be something impressive. It had to show this is the Son of God. This morning, my guess is, well, not just this morning, at some point in our lives, the words unclean will echo in our conscience. And this morning, maybe it is for you. And maybe it started kind of like that blemish did for the leper. It was kind of small. And it kept kind of getting bigger. You knew unclean. But over time, time again, because as horrible as it is to scream unclean with, our, with this voice that bellows, it's even worse when we scream it inside to our hearts. Unclean. Unclean. This afternoon, I'm going to do something I've kind of been dreading for a while. For 18 years, I've denied it, made jokes about it, acted like it wasn't going to happen. But here's the thing. Whether I want to or not, whether I like it or not, does not change the fact that something's going to happen at 3 o'clock. And I can't get around that. And so I get to embrace it. I get to celebrate it. But it doesn't, but however I feel about it does not change the fact that it's going to happen. Some of you are wrestling this morning with the fact that there is going to come a time when you're going to have to give an account. And today, all you can hear are the words unclean, unclean as you think about your soul. As you think about your relationship with God. So this morning, I'm just going to ask one simple question. How much longer are you going to scream unclean when this morning you can come to the one that cleanses? Won't you come while we stand and sing?